house of the Lord one more time this week. We're so grateful to God for his faithfulness and for his goodness toward us. God has been better to us than we deserve. And we are just so proud that he is our God and that he calls us his own. We're grateful to the Lord to be back in the word of God this week as we are joining again this week out of the book of 1 Samuel. And we're working down, we're all the way through um, 1 Samuel 18, and we're just grateful to the Lord as what he has been showing us as we've been walking through this book. Now, what's interesting about the book of Samuel, if you've not learned anything else, is that not much has changed in the annals of history. People seem to sin the same way, and God seems to extend grace the same way that he did in yesteryear as well. And so if anything that we're learning as we work through this book is that more than anything, God is the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he will be the same forever and always. And so we're going to look this week, as we looked last week and looked at what it meant to actually be friends, as we learned between the friendship of David and Jonathan, we're going to do a bit of a 180 this week and see what happens when you become enemies with someone. Now, we saw last week that they were friends, and the Bible described that their souls had been knit together, and we looked at how friendships are symbolic of the gospel in our lives. But what we're going to see this week is if that gospel is also evident and active in our lives as we are becoming friends, and that is patterning the gospel out in our lives, what also inevitably happens is as we live out the gospel before a world that does not love God, we will become enemies of the world. And so we're going to see that just as much as David was loved by Jonathan, he was just as hated by Jonathan's father, Saul. Now, interesting enough, as much as friendships are a reminder of the gospel for us, we also have to remember that developing enemies is a reminder of what the gospel actually requires of us. No, we aren't one of those churches that sits here and talks about all these haters and all these enemies that you have out there. But we do need to exact what we read in the Bible. And the reality is, is that there is a real adversary that we all face in this world. And if we turn a blind eye to it, we are more susceptible to his attacks. And so as God continued to be the hand in David's life, it continued to put him at odds with Saul because they were on completely different trajectories. And that is what we're going to learn today. The more we pursue Christ and his righteousness, the more it will put us at odds with the world. So go with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm picking up in verse 6 today. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet the king, with tambourines, the songs of joy, and with the musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, or he thought, 
I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed out and came before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fear for all of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went being able to jump back into the word of God. Lord, we thank you that as you are helping us work through this text, that you are revealing to us just the truth and the nature of the life that we live. God, there is a real enemy. There is a real adversary who is at war with us, who is at war against us. So, God, we just pray that as we hear this scripture, that you will reveal that to us and let us know how to combat that great enemy, which is Satan, Lord. We thank you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. And so in verse six here, the writer picks up back where we left off right after Goliath has been defeated. And it has led to David becoming somewhat of a legend in Israel. And so as he's becoming somewhat of a legend, there is a celebration for him. And it's also supposed. And so it says here that there is a celebration that is for David and for Saul. Now, the celebration that ends up being for Saul is essentially the celebration that is really meant for David. And so in this time, what would happen is there are basically two ways that a person would be celebrated. They would be celebrated in a coronation as they became king, but then they would also be celebrated if they had won some sort of victory. And so what we see here is that celebration of that victory that he would have been winning. Now, you'll notice here it says David killed his ten thousands and Saul, he killed his thousands. And you may think, well, we just saw them win this battle, but neither one of them killed a thousand people or ten thousand people. Well, when they were singing this song, it was a bit of an allegory where they would intentionally over-exaggerate the number of what people had done in order to celebrate what they had done. But they do something interesting here with this text. They say to David, who's not the king, he's actually killed more than Saul, who was the king. Now, I can imagine that this would have been particularly frustrating for Saul, because as we know, Saul has been taking much of the credit that he was getting from the victories of other people, even his son for himself. And so when he hears this, he says, wait a minute, they're giving him 10,000 and they're only ascribing to me a thousand. There's nothing that he will be able to do that he could even overtake me as the king. And the Bible says here that not only was he angry, but that that anger burned in him. That anger that he felt was rooted in jealousy. He wanted to be honored and respected, and David being celebrated was a threat to Saul as the king. Now, this is interesting because all this time, David has repeatedly made it clear to us that he is not the responsible party for his success. He said the Lord did it. While Saul, for even things that he had not done, was taking credit for it. And so I guess what I'm trying to get you to understand is that 
there are times that you can absolutely be doing what is right in the eyes of God, yet people will hate you because of the fact that you're doing right in the eyes of God. Jesus actually tells us this in Scripture, by the way. In Matthew 5, 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. One of the unintended responses to our faith is that it will put us at odds with people that we normally had not been at odds with. I think you know what I mean. All the people we talked to, we ran within the world. We went to the club together. We did all this stuff together. We got all that dirt on each other. Well, when the Lord saves you, they didn't quite like that, did they? Because he turned you and it took you in a different direction than where you all had been. So your friend now becomes an enemy. Jesus says that when he came, that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But that meaning that I'm going to divide people, even families from one another, because there are going to be some people in one family who love the Lord. And there are going to be some people in that same family who don't. And even if you have blood in common, that is not enough to hold you together when there is an enemy in between you. Saul and David, like many of us and many of our families, they were on two totally different trajectories in life. God had been with David, but Saul had been with himself. And it becomes more and more evident that the favor of God was on the life of David. Not only that, but David is loved by the very people that Saul had been called to rule over. And the jealousy that Saul feels is also producing in him this paranoia. He says that they have given me my thousands, but they've given him his ten thousands. And his fear is that because they respect David so much that David will be empowered and ultimately triumph over him as the king. And the Bible then uses this interesting phrase. And I was searching all through the Hebrew to figure out what does that phrase mean? It said from that moment on, Saul eyed David. It's like, what does that mean? But I realized when I looked at it, it literally says that he looked at him with suspicion from that time on. I think all of us knows when you start not trusting anybody anymore and everything they start doing becomes suspicious to you. This is exactly what has happened with Saul and David, except the only problem is, is that David had not done anything wrong to warrant this suspicion. Now, you have to remember God had placed David in the kingdom because when Saul would get so angry, they used him to play the harp to calm him down. But now we read that not even the harp will quench the flame that is his wrath. In his anger, with his spear in his hand, he quickly devised a plan. And that plan was to kill David. Now, he tries to impale David by throwing the spear at him so that it would actually impale him to the wall. Now, I want you to see this. He tries this twice, and it says that both times David evaded him. But then there was a fear that rushed over Saul. He realized, the Bible says, God is with this man. 
And that is the greatest fear that we can have with the enemy. If you remember, even in the New Testament, in Acts, as angry as the Pharisees were with the disciples, the apostles who were spreading the word of God, they said, but they could tell that they had been with Jesus. There is a residue for those of us who are believers that we can never shake the residue of Christ off of us because he lives within us. But now it makes sense to me when we read these words in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, O God, are with me. He's with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He wasn't just writing when he wrote this, y'all. He was writing from his own experience. He had been in the house of Saul where a spear was hurled at him. And for David, that was the shadow of death. It wasn't actual death, but it was the shadow of it. But God was with him. Because of this fear, he takes David and makes him the commander of his army. So now it's like, I got to get you out of this house because God is with you and I don't really want to have anything to do with God right now. So he gets him out of the house. Hopefully, by making him the commander of the army, he would at least die in battle. As with everything else, though, David was successful even in that. And because of that, Saul's fear of him grew even more. Now, when he sees we see that David evaded Saul. I want you to notice this. Because I searched, I searched, I used every commentary to figure out. It says he evaded him. But it never mentions that he did it on purpose. It never even tells us that he knew that Saul was even trying to kill him. On one hand, we should be aware that there is an adversary. But then it also shows us that even when we are unaware that there is an enemy against us, God's faithfulness will protect us. Now it makes sense to me when the old folks would get up and say he protected me from danger seen and unseen. There were things that the Lord protected us from that we didn't even know we needed protecting from. Then we go down to verse 17. It says, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Mira. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight to the Lord for the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, well, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, that the, the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. 
And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become king, the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that they may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistine. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was even more highly esteemed. Now, I do want you to notice how Saul is not using the same method in his attempt to destroy David. His attacks are changing. They are evolving because he realizes as he sees David grow in his ability to fight the battles against Satan and against Saul, that he needs to have a stronger attack every time. And so he devised a new plan. He says, you know what? I was going to give you my other daughter, but I'm going to give you this daughter because she loves you. And I bet you love her, too. And I want her to be a snare for you. I want her to be a trap for you. So he gives him his daughter in order that she may entrap him. His plans are evolving. But then he says, not only that, but I'm, I'm going to send you to war, hoping that the Philistines will get you. And by the way, I'm going to give you a bride price. I'm going to give you a task that I know you won't be able to do. Go get me the foreskins of the enemies. I know you can't do that. They're going to kill you when you get over there. So let's think about this. He's made him commander. He tried to throw him the, his spear at him. He gave him his daughter. He sent him to war to die. He gave him a bride price. And every time he did this, the Lord was with David. Saul is a sick man and his evil knows no bounds. And that's what we actually need to learn from this if we learn nothing else. We don't have an adversary who when he tries one attack, he just gives up and like, I guess they got me. He comes back every time with a stronger, more diligent attack. That is why the Bible says if you run from him, if you turn from him, if you submit to God, resist the devil, he will then flee from you. But he never said that you had to do this one time. The Christian life is us constantly submitting ourselves to God and constantly watching the enemy flee away. But this is the thing. Just because he left one time doesn't mean he ain't coming back. And as you change and as you grow and as your desires change, so does his attack. 
so does the way he approaches you change. His evil knows no bounds. But you know, one of the things that shocks me, and I surround myself with a pretty diligent group of Christians, I think, in church, out of church, some at where I work, I am ever shocked by the amount of Christians who casually walk around as if there is no enemy at all. They act like there is not a Satan in hell who is trying to counteract everything that God is trying to do. Everything that glorifies God, like there is not an enemy who is attacking gender and marriage and race and using all these things that are meant to glorify God to distort our minds. And eventually leads to us killing each other. And I'm speaking because I'll admit there was even at one point in my walk this naivety in me. I remember hearing people say the enemy this and evil this and the devil this and like I don't see any of it. But now I realize that I don't think I was necessarily living in a way that made me aware that there was an enemy. Many of us are content living our life as if there is no enemy, and it is evident in our lives. We don't go to church, we don't read the word, we don't share the gospel, yet we think we can sit and complain about the world getting worse. Of course the world is getting worse, because while the adversary is wreaking havoc, we are watching church from home. And we don't even realize there are spears being hurled at us every single day. But there is an enemy, y'all, and we better live like there is one. In 2 Corinthians 10 and 3, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds in Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How does the enemy attack us? He attacks us by what we listen to. He attacks us by what we watch. He attacks us by who we surround ourselves with. And eventually, his main goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And unfortunately, many of us are sitting ducks. As the enemy plots, as he throws his spears, as he hurls his attack at us, we just sit there and take it. These two passages are a reminder of us of the height and the depth and the breadth of the enemy that we are at war against. This wickedness extends and expands far beyond what we can see or perceive. Y'all, David ain't the only one who's walking in the shadow of death. Every day we are walking in shadowy death, but like David, if we know the Lord, I will fear no evil. I don't care what the world does. I don't care what the politics do. I don't care what Russia does. I don't care. I will not fear the enemy because God is with me. And God in us is the hope of glory. And him in us is more than the world against us. 
How do you not fear evil? <laughs> Brandon, you just told us about a wicked world with hidden agendas and an inner working that we can't even see. How can I be a Christian and not fear it? It's a simple equation. You just got to fear God more than you fear the world. That's it. This is the promise that we have in Scripture. In John 16 and 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But this is it. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He has already overcome the world. Every attack that Satan has against us has already been defeated. Even if he takes my life, my soul belongs to God. Is there hidden wickedness? Yes. Are there societies of people that are actively of, uh, at work against Christ in the world? Yes. Is there a real enemy that we face? Yes, but we can take heart. We have courage knowing that Jesus has already overcome the world. What can we fear? On the cross, Christ preemptively and finally defeated Satan, our greatest enemy, the enemy of righteousness, and he secured victory for us. That death on the cross that looked like a defeat was in fact one, but it was Satan's defeat, and it was our victory. Satan's great deception is in making us believe that he's not that bad or that he's not at work, but he is. And the second that we think he isn't, that's when we become vulnerable. But I'm telling you now, we must fight this good fight of faith until we breathe our last breath. We must be like Paul, who's writing from a Roman prison as he writes his final letter. He says, I want to stay here, but I also want to be with Christ. And then he says, I finished my course. I stayed the course. I fought the good fight of faith. He says, and whether I die naturally or whether they kill me, for me to live is Christ. But for me to die, for me to die is gain. That means that if the enemy threatens to take my life, you just expediting the process. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to be with Jesus one way or the other. I would rather fear him who can cast both body and soul in hell than the enemy who can only harm my body. I'm going to get a new one anyway. I ain't getting used to this body no way. There is an enemy, but we have victory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can learn from such a simple text that we have victory. God, as we are all navigating all the different circumstances, all the different challenges that we face, God, it is easy for us to forget that there is still an enemy who is at work against us. 
because you've already overcome the world. We can trust you. We can lean on you. We can depend on you. But God, we can't be complacent in it. We can't sit around like sitting ducks. We must be active. We must know our word. The word must be in us and we must be in it. God, we must be being filled with your spirit. Knowing that while the enemy is sharpening his sword that you have given us a two edged sword. In the word and it's sharper than in his spear in the attack that Satan would bring against us. Lord, I know sometimes we forget that there is an enemy, but there is an enemy. But in you and only in you alone, we have already overcome that enemy. God, I'm reminded as I look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross, that image from the passion of the Christ, when he hangs his head and there's his wail that comes, because you stamped the final enemy in his place. And you've given us victory. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.